Welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This morning I want to take us in a time machine back to the very beginning when Judaism and Christianity went their separate ways. For it's at that moment in history when we begin the journey which will take us to a point in time when the words anti-Jewish, anti-Semitism, anti-Israel start to converge. But to understand how these three very separate terms begin to converge with each other and seem to have lost any independent meaning, we have to understand the historical roots. So way back when, in the first century of the Common Era, Jews and early Christians saw themselves as two distinct religious communities. The dominant pagan society of Rome lumped the two religions together, refusing to recognize the early Christians as a separate entity. By 96 of the Common Era, though, the Roman Empire had begun to accept Christianity as a divergent religion, Whose, no, whose members were no longer required to pay the Jew tax instated after the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. Nevertheless, in the early part of the first century, the lives of Christians were not easier than those of the Jews, and eventually their experience under Roman rule was even more difficult. Christians were routinely persecuted by local governors as part of a greater Roman policy of anti-religious persecution. The situation of Christians in the Middle East was irrevocably altered during the reign of Constantine, emperor of Rome, when in 312 of the Common Era, 312, he claimed that during his prayer, he saw a sign in the heavens in the form of a cross of light bearing the inscription, by this conquer, after which he made a standard, a standing symbol with this. Although scholars dispute whether Constantine converted at this point or later in it reign, it did alter the way he treated Christianity in the Roman Empire. By 313 of the Common Era, nearly a year later, he issued the Edict of Milan, giving liberty to Christians who were finally able to worship their specific deity. A number of years later, in 321 of the Common Era, Constantine compelled all of his subjects to observe the Lord's Day, as he called it, and issued another edict requiring its observance on Sunday a day he called Dea Solis, the day of the sun. In his attempt to unify the empire, Constantine began a systematic persecution of practicing pagans, Jews, and schismatic Christians, including the Donastis and the Arians who split Christianity, namely created a schism due to their various beliefs regarding Jesus and God. A series of Christian councils 
follow the instating of the church as the official representative of Christianity. One of those councils, and probably the most important during this era of early Roman uh, acceptance, was the Council of Nicaea, which took place in 325 of the Common Era. This was the first ecumenical council, a council of theological experts and church leadership, convened to establish church laws and traditions. The most significant achievement of this meeting was the Nicene Creed, which served as the basis for a unified Christianity and the theological establishment of a Trinitarian doctrine. But the council also promulgated many anti-Jewish statements. Here is one. This is known as Canon 52. Usury and the base seeking of worldly gain is forbidden to the clergy. Also, conversation and fellowship with Jews is forbidden. Let me read that again to you. Usury and the base seeking of worldly gain is forbidden to the clergy. Also, conversation and fellowship with Jews is forbidden. In terms of Jewish-Christian relations, the council had a significant effect. Constantine, still emperor of Rome, and the early church fathers actively sought to establish firm parameters to protect the Christian population from Judaizing. They used this first ecumenical council to legally separate Jews from Christians in everyday life. Given this, conversion and fellowship were strictly, conversation and fellowship were strictly forbidden between the two communities. There were huge ramifications for the Jews because of the law established here. Essentially, the Christians were setting up an us and them dichotomy and clearly noting the us as superior and them as the other or as inferior. In setting up this first dichotomy, not only as the other inferior to Christianity, but it may also become the representative of all that is evil and wrong in the world. Once the, do, the groups do not fraternize and interact with each other, they will only be able to imagine what the other group is really like. This makes it much easier for the people of one group to discount and demonize the people of the other. A further step would not just verbal condemnation, but even physical acts of violence. In addition, you will note that Canon 52 introduces the historical basis for why Jews became associated with usury in Christian lands, as noted in The Merchant of Venice by Shakespeare. This canon clearly states that clergy are forbidden to engage in the practice of usury, Ultimately, this ban was expanded to all Christians, and the Jews ended up filling the void for society, as additional laws forbade Jews from many other occupations. Eventually, the laws of the Nicene Conference led to natural tensions between creditors and debtors, fermenting religious hatred of the Jewish population. Of course, these are not the only laws that began the path upon which we find um, anti-Jewish feelings. 
Here's one called the Laws of Constantinus concerning Jews, heaven worshipers, and Samaritans from 339, 339 of the Common Era. Only a few years later, 15 years later. So here is how this law read. This law says, This pertains to women who live in our weaving factories and whom Jews in their foulness take in marriage. It is decreed that these women are to be restored to the weaving factories. This prohibition is to be preserved for the future, lest the Jews induce Christian women to share their shameful lives. If they do this, they will subject themselves to a sentence of death. Then it goes on to say, a Jew shall not possess a Christian slave. If anyone among the Jews has purchased a slave of another sect or nation, that slave shall at once be appropriated for the imperial treasury. If indeed he shall have circumcised the slave whom he has purchased, he will not only be fined for the damage done to that slave, but he will also receive capital punishment. If indeed a Jew does not hesitate to purchase slaves, those who are members of the faith that is worthy of respect, namely Christianity, then all these slaves who are found in the Jews' possession shall at once be removed. No delay shall be occasioned, but he is to be deprived of the possession of men who are Christians. The laws of Constantius introduced two statutes to separate the Jews from the Christian majority. This continues that which was started in the Council of Nicaea. Two such prohibitions are stated here that of intermarriage between Jewish men and Christian women, and the other prohibiting Jews from being able to own Christian slave. According to this law, women who were intermarried were returned to their previous station in life, known in this law as the weaving factories, and their marriages were dissolved. For the Jews themselves, the penalty of these marriages was more severe, as usually it incurred the death penalty. And so you might ask, what is the downside of prohibiting uh, intermarriage? Well, it is true that according to Judaism, intermarriage was banned. Nevertheless, in the fourth century of the Common Era, in practice, Jews continued to marry non-Jewish women. And although the rabbis attempted to maintain the law, it was not until Christian society instituted a ban that the act of intermarriage was actually upheld by internal and external pressures. The level of tolerance that one community affords another can be ascertained through social acceptance of intermarriage, as it is today. In a society that refuses intermarriage and penalizes those who intermarry, segregation is more extreme. And in a society that penalizes intermarriage with a death sentence, the willingness to tolerate a minority is even further reduced. We are beginning to see how the desire of Christianity to establish itself as an important religion separate from the origins of Judaism begins through its determination of separateness to isolate the Jews, and in isolation begins the process of demonizing the Jews. Here's another example of this by the Archbishop of Constantinople, and here the separation is markedly different and more hostile. 
This is written in 386. Inns are no more august than royal palaces. Indeed, the synagogue is less deserving of honor than any inn. It is not merely a lodging place for robbers and cheats, but also for demons. This is true not only of the synagogues, but also of the souls of the Jews, as I shall try to prove at the end of my homily. I urge you, my listeners, to keep my words in your minds in a special way, for I am not now speaking for show or applause, but to cure your souls. And what else is left for me to say when some of you are still sick, although there are many physicians to effect the cure? There were twelve apostles, and they drew the whole world to themselves. The great portion of the city is Christian, yet some are still sick with Judaizing disease. And what could we who are healthy, namely Christians, say in our own defense? Surely those who are sick deserve to be accused. But we are not free from blame because we have neglected them in the hour of illness. If we had shown great concern for them and they had benefit of this care, they could not possibly still be sick. Namely, the Archbishop of Constantinople claims that the Jews are sick people, that Judaism is a sickness, and Christians have an obligation to cure them. Let me start on you, he continues by saying this now, so that each of you may win over his brother. Even if you must impose restraint, even if you must use force, even if you must treat him ill and obstinately, do everything to save him from the devil's snare and to free him from fellowship with those who slew Christ. Well, you can understand that the Archbishop of Constantinople, known as St. John in Christianity, who lived between 347 and 407, viewed the Jews as spreading the Judaizing disease and charged many of them with infractions, including being robbers, cheats, demons, and deicides. In the rest of this homily, which I'm not going to share with you, he introduced a significant portion of anti-Jewish iconography, the trope of Judaism as a disease that could destroy the souls of Christians and possibly the entirety of Christendom, was a significant factor in separating the Jewish community from Christian, one through legal edicts and prohibitions. It is important to fathom, to understand that this text does not come from the pen of some random person during the 4th century, but rather from one of the most important church fathers and revered saints of his time. His teachings, as far as I know, are still part and parcel of various Christian denominations to this day, and have formed part of church instruction since they were written. Consequently, his words did not just have a significant effect on the Jewish community at the time of listening to the archbishop known as St. John, but affected Christian perception of Jews throughout the Middle Ages and even into the modern period. This text served as the backbone of anti-Jewish feeling among medieval Christians. And in many ways, John, St. John, was the founder of anti-Judaism. 
If it were not for his anti-Jewish claims and history and accusations, the history of anti-Semitism might have, in fact, looked very differently. Now, the early church certainly understood its antipathy towards Judaism based on its understanding that the Jews would not accept Jesus as their Lord. That's really the history of Christian anti-Jewish feeling. But the world did not remain static. The world, well, the world revolves and turns. And so eventually, anti-Jewish feeling, the marginalization of Jews because they are not Christian, begins to morph into what we will call, and what we do call today, anti-Semitism. I want to skip 1,500 years to the early 19th century and read you a different kind of document. This is a document by a Prussian author published under the pseudonym of St. John Retcliffe. Listen to what he says, and then I'll explain it and how it's important for the transformation of anti-Jewish feeling to anti-Semitism. Our fathers, the title of this speech is The Rabbi's Speech, The Promise of World Domination. This purports to be a speech given by a rabbi to his Jewish congregation. That's where our fathers comes from. Our fathers have bequeathed to the elect of Israel the duty of gathering together once each century around the tomb of the great master Caleb, the holy rabbi Simeon ben Yehuda, whose knowledge gives the elect of each generation power over all the earth and authority all of, over the, all the descendants of Israel. For 18 centuries, Israel has been at war with the power that was first promised to Abraham, but which was taken from him by the cross. Trampled underfoot, humiliated by its enemies, living carelessly and ceaselessly under the threat of death, of persecution, of rape, and every kind of violation, the people of Israel has not succumbed. And if it is dispersed over the entire world, that is because it is to inherit the entire world. For 18 centuries, our wise men have been fighting the cross courageously and with a perseverance, which nothing can discourage. Gradually, I tell you, our people is rising up and its power increases day by day. Ours is that God of today whom Aaron raised up for us in the desert, the golden calf, the universal deity of the age, the day when we will make ourselves the sole possessors of all the world's gold. The real power will be in our hands and then the promises which were made to Abraham will be fulfilled. It is in our interest that we should make a show of zeal for the social questions of the moment, especially for improving the lot of the workers. But in reality, our efforts must be geared towards getting control of this movement of public opinion and directing it. So far as possible, we must talk to the proletariat, bring it into subjection to those who have handling of money. By this means, we will be able to make the masses rise when we wish. We will drive them to upheavals, to revolutions, and each of these catastrophes make a small, marks a big step forward for our particular interests. 
and brings us rapidly nearer to our sole aim, world domination. Well, this is not a document accusing the Jews of deicide. This is not a document which wants to separate Jews from faithful Christians. The Jews are depicted in this text in a typical caricature prevalent during the 19th and 20th century. They are given contradictory characteristics. On the one hand, describing the low position held by the Jews in Europe, and at the same time, indicating how Christian society saw them as being superior. The document also demonstrates the Jews' greed, and yet at the same time portrays that Jew as leaning towards conservatism and an anti-liberal attitude, marking the Jews' disdain for the new world order. Generally, such negative stereotypes were deemed to be accurate portrayal of the Jews. The Jews were depicted as having considerable disdain for European society, not just Christian society, but the new emancipated post-nationalistic society. They are portrayed as secretly planning to control the non-Jewish society completely. In the hands of the Jews, this document suggests liberal ideas are a means by which to gain access to Europe in order to direct it. The Jew here thinks himself superior to his neighbors who are seen as blind and susceptible, able to be manipulated and controlled by like puppets. The Jew, according to this document, planned to create mass upheaval, to conquer all of society by means of revolutions that will bring the Christian world to its knees. World domination is key and represents the true meaning of God's promises to Abraham. Of course, this text creates a grotesque and scary image of the Jew, bastardizing reality so that falsehoods seem plausible. Shortly after being written, the speech was treated as an authentic document, depicting a real meeting between sinister Jews. It appeared for the first time in a Russian pamphlet in 1872, and then in Paris and in Prague shortly thereafter. Theodore Fritsch, a German publisher and journalist, published this false speech in a document entitled The Racist Decalogue in 1883, where it received wide circulation. And most historians believe that this text was the precursor for the most fame, infamous protocols of the wise elders of Zionism, one of the most detrimental pieces of anti-Semitic literature ever written. It was used to lend credence to the protocols, giving rise to mass hysteria that the Jews were actually intending to dominate the world, control the proletariat, and rise up against their masters. This is the beginning, the transformation from anti-Jewish feeling to anti-Semitism, a sense that the Jews as a race, not as a religion, need to be condemned. That as a race, not as a faith-based group, they pose a threat and danger. I'm going to read you one more document. This is a document written by Carl Eugen Doering, and he entitled it, The Question of the Jew is a Question of Race. 
written in the mid-1920s. Uh, a Jewish question would still exist even if every Jew were to turn his back on his religion and join one of our major churches. Yes, I maintain that in that case, the struggle between us and the Jews would make itself felt as even more urgent. Although the struggle is certainly as felt even now when the Jews have yet to convert in large numbers, it is precisely the baptized Jews who infiltrate furthest, unhindered in all sectors of society and political life. It is as though they have provided themselves with an unrestricted passport, advancing their stock to those places where members of the Jewish religion are unable to follow. Furthermore, several doors are closed to members of the Jewish religion by our country's legislation, and more particularly by the principles of our administration. But nonetheless, once they have forsaken the, their religion, the racial Jew can enter unhindered the portals a similar situation to one involving the baptized Jews results as soon as all civic rights and opportunities become available to members of the Jewish religion. Thereupon, they force themselves into all aspects of social and political life. I return, therefore, he writes, to the hypothesis that Jews are to be defined solely on the basis of race and not on the basis of religion. I dismiss all conclusions hereto upheld. The Mosaic attempt to locate within the base of our people a Jewish component only makes the Jewish question an even more burning issue. The diverse admixture of modern cultures, or in other words, the sprinkling of racial Jewry in the cracks and crevices of our national abode, must inevitably lead to a reaction it is impossible that close contact between members of our race and members of the Jewish race will take effect without concomitant realization that the infusion of Jewish qualities is incompatible with our best impulses. Well, here, this document makes the transition from anti-Jewish feeling to anti-Semitism complete. What began as simply an attempt for early Christianity to carve out for itself a uh, place in the religious pantheon of the early first and second century and was transformed by the Roman emperor Constantine into a way to ensure that Christian Roman Empire was not in any way undermined by other religious groups and lumping Jews and pagans and all non-practicing Christians or non-appropriately uh, practicing Christians together led to anti-Jewish feeling. But 1,500 years later, that anti-Jewish feeling is transformed, morphs, into a racial issue. And it's with that transformation to a racial issue that anti-Semitism is born. The feeling that the entire uh, genetics of the Jewish people, regardless of religious practice, is an anathema and has within it a stranglehold on the future of the world. That 
is what leads to the confluence of then anti-Israel feeling and anti-Semitism. Because normally anti-Semitism refers to all those who are Semitic, and Arabs would be Semitic. But here, the anti-Semitic feeling addressed to Jews is that Jews as a racial component, separate from their religious beliefs, are a danger to the entire world. I'm sure we'll have more to speak on this in the future. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and have a good day. You can hear this broadcast as a podcast on CHRI website or on iTunes or wherever you purchase and acquire your podcast. Shalom. Shalom.